tonight we reflect on the reality of Good Friday. That on the cross, Jesus hung there and experienced death and in doing so, put death to death. Isn't that amazing? So as we enter into this, in this series tonight, what I'd love for you to do is I would love for you, I would love for us to start by you go ahead and just close your eyes and I'm going to read John's account of Jesus's final moments before, before he surrendered his life. This is from John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. Tonight, we have the opportunity to sit in this moment. And not so that it would be some version of uh, just sheer terror or that we would just feel bad about ourselves and about what happened to Jesus. But that we would experience the weight of this moment. Because you see, so easily, if we minimize the gravity of the cross, we unintentionally minimize the effect of the empty tomb in our understanding. See, the events of Good Friday bring about such beauty and brokenness. And I, I know for myself, the events of the cross can oftentimes be something that I absolutely believe, but they can kind of become normalized over years and over times of telling and retelling the same story where it becomes more just tradition that we come to a service on the Friday before Easter and then we come back on, the, on Easter Sunday itself and it's kind of like check, check. Instead of really sitting and experiencing this moment. And maybe you grew up in a Christian faith tradition and yeah, Easter for you is kind of one of those normal things that you come and experience. Or maybe for you, this whole church thing is, is new for you. And maybe whenever you have heard about Jesus dying on the cross, it just has never really made sense. You've never really understood the why behind it. What does it mean? Why does it matter? But see, wherever we each are coming into this space tonight, we have the opportunity in this special Easter series to experience something unique, something that is going to both activate our minds and imaginations as well as our hearts and our emotions. See, what we're going to do is we are going to reflect by putting on a few different lenses or different perspectives and pondering and reflecting what different spectators or participants in the story might have experienced. And in doing so, it's not that we are saying anything that the scriptures are insufficient towards, but just as uh, different forms of media, different uh, iterations of art can help bring perspective, freshness, reflection, meditation on truths you hold dear and allows you the ability to experience them in new ways. The hope is that tonight and again on Easter will provide us that kind of an opportunity. It's going to captivate and recaptivate our minds and our hearts with the beauty of Jesus and the power of what he accomplished on the cross and the majesty of what was accomplished at the empty tomb. Now, last week I read this passage from the book of Philippians. I think it's so good. It says it this way, and being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Good Friday. Therefore, in light of that reality, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. See, the events of Holy Week bring about this incredible reality that we get the opportunity to experience, sit in the truth that the kingdom of God is at hand, that God is affecting a new work in our world and that there will one day be a day when every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. 
Now we're gonna take our cues tonight, just as we did last week at Palm Sunday, from those three different perspectives, because there will be a day when those three perspectives collide in one cataclysmic movement, when every knee will bow. But as it stands and as it stood 2,000 years ago, the experience of these three different perspectives give great clarity. So I want to start by reading back in the book of John, the entire account. So if you have your Bible open, we're in John chapter 19, and I'm going to start in verse 16, and I'm going to read all the way to 30 so that we can really sit in the power of this passage. So what has just happened so far is Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman official who oversees the entire area of Judea. And he has, it is ultimately his call what happens to Jesus. So it says, they took him, Jesus, and he went out piercing, um, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Then there they crucified him, the Roman soldiers, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription, and he put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read this inscription for the the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Now Pilate answered, "What what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic, the, um, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us tear it, but cast, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture as well, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is the author of this letter, uh, the apostle John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, pointing to John. Then he said to John, his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. So they took a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, it wasn't peculiar for criminals or political opponents of the Roman Empire to face humiliating execution of crucifixion. Like that, that wasn't a a not ordinary thing in their world. It was harsh and it was brutal, but it got a point across that you don't cross the Roman Empire. You don't mess with Caesar. So why is this moment so unique? I think us going into each of these three perspectives, first off from a bird's eye view, is going to give us some of the power, some of the weight, some understanding into this. See, to be sure, there were the religious leaders from Earth's perspective who were celebrating this moment. This is what they had been dreaming of for like two and a half years. They had wanted to silence Jesus. They didn't want him going around. They didn't want him preaching his message. They didn't want him messing up the status quo. But even in this passage, we discover the shock and the horror of this moment. And for those who were a part of the crowd, for those who were a part of Jesus' inner circle, wasn't this the one who had come to set them free? I mean, even the disciples who walked with Jesus believed that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. How could they have put their hope in obviously the wrong one? Have you ever experienced deep grief? Uh, today's a weird one for, for me. Um, it is five years today since uh, my dad passed away. And I know that I'm not the only one that has lost somebody close. And 
I know from personal experience as well as from talking with others about, the, about some realities of grief. And there are two things that I've noticed for a lot of people when, we're, when we are experiencing deep, deep grief. First, you experience the loss. The, you're grieving the loss of the actual person or maybe it's a job or fill in the blank of whatever you could potentially be grieving. It's the loss of that person, the loss of that person that you have now, there's now a relationship there or whatever, but it's the loss of the person or the thing itself, okay? So that you grieve, but that's not the only thing you grieve because you also grieve the hope that you found in that thing. And that's not to say that's idolatry or something. It's just that you, you had hope, you had dreams of that relationship, I had hopes for my experience with my dad as I would grow up and, and, and have kids and that he would have grandkids and experience those moments. And so there's those hopes that were attached. So it's not just that I miss my dad or that you miss that person or that you miss that job, but also there were the hopes that were attached to that reality. And both are significant spaces of grief. And you don't know where one starts and the other begins, but both are significant. So can you imagine this grief for the disciples in this moment? Broken at the loss of their friend, their mentor, the one who they ate dinner with, walked around, laughed with, cried with, but also broken at the reality that apparently they, they bet on the wrong horse. Now what? Their hopes were that they were a part of something incredible, but now it doesn't look that way, does it? If this wasn't the Messiah, who would it be? How could the one that they thought would be the conquering king himself apparently be conquered? Now, it's interesting that Pilate uses this phrase, right, on the inscription that he puts on the marker that he is the king of the Jews. Now, there are a lot of different thoughts about what his motivation was in that moment. Was he trying to honor Jesus or dishonor him? Now, the reality is we don't see inside Pilate's mind in this moment in any of the gospels. But what we do know is we know what Pilate's job was. Pilate's job was to enforce Roman peace. Now we've talked about Pax Romana, this idea of peace at the end of a sword. You will stay in line and that's peace. His job was not to be a counselor. He wasn't there to listen, to empathize, to build consensus, to make sure everyone like, hey, let's just have like a good group session and we'll talk about it. And I'm going to find out what your thoughts are. That's not Pilate's MO at all. His job is to ensure that the occupied people of Judea stay in line and do not find their hope in anything apart from Caesar. That's his, that's his entire gig. Like this is a guy who has one job and that's it. And he is going to use every moment to do that. And so when he writes this thing where he says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, he was exposing some of you, you are finding your hope in him. He's conquered. Now for the crowd, can you imagine how visual this reminder would be when you read that inscription? If we were a part of the crowd, we talked about this on Palm Sunday, right? What were they doing? They were, had their palm branches out. They were waving them. Hosanna, Hosanna. Their new King David had come. Their national hero had arrived. But then the week started and we were excited and, and st so stoked. And now we're here. But from there to here, he went off the rails by Monday afternoon. See, what they were expecting is that he would go straight up to the Roman guards and start a revolution. But instead, he begins to give them a revelation that they weren't prepared for in any way, shape or form. He spent the first day doing a bunch of things that were unexpected to say the least and crazy from their perspective to say the most. So on Monday, what does he do? He goes into the temple and what does he start doing? He goes and flips over the money changers tables. 
I mean, for sure, they, they shouldn't be doing that technically, like not exactly the best idea. They're overcharging and scamming off foreigners. Um, they are using the, the temple courtyard as an opportunity to really throw things into some really devastating spaces. So nobody was probably going to defend that action, like what they were doing, but what they were doing in that temple court was small fish compared to the Romans. These were the oppressors. Why didn't Jesus just go up to them? Why didn't he go overthrow their tables? And then what does he start doing on Tuesday? He keeps preaching, but he's, he's not preaching of a revolution. He is preaching of a different kingdom, one of peace, and he's not being specific. Isn't that weird? Wednesday, more preaching, more prayer. No strategy sessions for how we're overthrowing the Roman government. Why? What is he doing? And then on Thursday, he finally gets his, his, his posse together for a nice Passover meal. But the only strategy he offers in that space is that their strategy is that the world will know that you are my followers by your love for one another. And then what does he do? He gets down and starts washing their feet. Not exactly what you're expecting from your conquering king, right? He tells them to demonstrate sacrificial love for one another, to become the servant of one another. Did he not realize what was about to happen? Later that night, what happens? He gets carted off to prison. Out of strategy sessions. So here they all are now on Friday and the one who, we, who they waved palm leaves in front of is now hanging on a cross and he is lifeless. So the question is, how could they think that he was the conquering king? Now, from the under the earth perspective, there is disbelief as well. But it's disbelief because the plan actually worked from their perspective, right? I mean, don't villains' plans always get foiled? Especially Satan's, right? Over and over and over again, you read the scriptures. Satan doesn't have a winning streak going at any point. In all the years that go in the garden, the snake-crushing child of the woman was prophesied to be his undoing. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity, he's saying this to the serpent, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, with every passing generation, he made it his goal to ensure that the snake crusher would never actually get a shot. So over and over and over again, he plots against the children of those who are faithful. Whether it's through stoking up jealousy like between Cain and Abel or Joseph and his brothers or through fear, like stoking up the fears of Pharaoh, getting him to desire to exterminate and commit genocide against the Hebrews. Through pride, when you look at the entire line of King David, over and over and over again, disqualified. And then the Bethlehem baby, right? And we know this one pretty clearly, right? Attempt after attempt to throw him off. Yet, yet he's unthrowoffable. But now the conquering king and the snake crusher is dead. Like a fool, he walked right into Satan's trap. How could his followers think he was the conquering king? Now from heaven's perspective, what's this moment like? It really happened, right? The king allowed it. The creator of the cosmos put to death by his own creation. If they would have just let them, I'm sure a legion of angelic messengers would have been down in a heartbeat, cut him off the cross, conquered on his behalf. But that wasn't the plan. Why wouldn't he allow that to be the plan? I mean, ever since the garden, the angels have been very, 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 very aware of the brokenness and sinfulness of humanity. And over and over and over again, they have watched men and women want life on their own terms, wanting to walk their own way, not God's. Which brings up the wrath of God. 
The just punishment for all the chaos and damage and rebellion is finally being poured out. But it's not in the direction of humanity. It's in the direction of the only one who has ever lived and deserved none of it. Isn't that crazy? It's not fair. Jesus didn't deserve this. Humanity does. The king doesn't. But you see, this is the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. And even at this point, they don't fully understand what's going to happen next. But what they do know is that the king does conquer. The broken, true things of life will soon be made untrue. Broken hearts will be mended. The resurrection of the dead is coming. Life, light, and freedom are upon all of creation. And even as they remove the king from the cross, his lifeless body, his broken, scarred, marked body, the angels... Angels know about dark moments, right? They've been watchers through all of it. When the man and the woman were removed from the garden and separated from relationship with God, that's a dark moment. When the chaotic flood waters are, are the undoing of all of creation, it's a dark moment. The wars, plagues, the genocides, the rebellions, all dark, and, but none of it compares to this darkness. The father literally can't even look at his son. How's that even possible? See, this is true darkness, yet there is light. There is hope. The story isn't over. And if this feels like whiplash, that's because that's exactly what this moment is. Could you imagine what they're wondering? Like, have, has the enemy forgotten how that prophecy back in Genesis actually falls across, that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Getting an attack on the heel is a lot easier to take than an attack on the head, right? For sure, the serpent has on the cross bruised his heel, but the king is not done. It's almost time for him to deal that fatal blow to the head of the serpent. How could they not realize even now that this is truly the conquering king. See, we humans, we are quick to run right past moments like this, right? We forget to meditate on what is difficult. I know I do. To think, well, yeah, that was rough, but at least like Easter Sunday's coming, and it is. But if we sit in this part of the moment, that becomes all the sweeter. See, if you're anything like me, you are quick to minimize the gravity of the cross and, in, and by extension, minimizing the beauty of the empty tomb. So tonight, what we want to do is we want to invite all of us together into a creative and artistic expression of these three different perspectives up close and personal. Now, the focus and the goal is that our hearts and our minds would be evoked and challenged by three dramatic monologues, one representing each of these three perspectives. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. To really get into the mindset of how must these three perspectives who one day will all bow before the conquering king experience this moment of the cross. Now, specifically what that's going to look like is we are going to have an actor representing the perspective of heaven as an angelic messenger. Mary Magdalene representing earth's perspective and a portrayal of the Satan representing the perspective of under the earth. Now I mentioned that and I want to be very clear about this because I realize, especially in doing a representation of the Satan, that that can be jarring. Um, but I, what I would want to share with you in advance before we begin this part of our gathering is that this is not meant to scare you. This is not meant um, to make you think that he is a co-equal with God because he's not. He loses. I know all the historians. And if you don't, you're going to find out by Easter Sunday. Um, this is not meant to make light of any of this. It's actually meant to express what we believe and hold to be true within the scriptures. That we have a spiritual enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. So with that in mind, as we are engaging in this space, we try to be honoring to what the scriptures articulate and trying to be as um, intentional as we can with each of these spaces, very prayerful through all of it. 
Now, with that being said, if you are somebody who um, might be especially sensitive for any reason with zero, zero shame, zero anything, um, and, that, and, and specifically a portrayal of the Satan might be something that would be difficult for you, um, I'm going to let you know right now that he's going to be the second one up. The first is going to be Mary Magdalene, and the third is going to be the angel. So with that in mind, if, if that is something that you would, that you would choose to not um, engage in and, and witness, uh, just know that that's totally okay. Um, we're going to have some volunteers at the back who are going to open the door for you. If you would want to even just go take a bathroom break, um, catch breath for a second, and then come back in after Mary, I'm sorry, between Mary and coming back after the, or for the angel portrayal as well. So that's our hope. That's our heart. That through these perspectives that we would see, that we'd be captivated, not by any of these three perspectives, but we'd be captivated by Jesus. So with that in mind, I would love for you all to pray with me. And then we're going to continue on our gathering into this creative space. Father, tonight I thank you that you are good and righteous and holy. That at the cross, we have the ultimate display of your loving kindness. Not because of what Jesus took on, but because what it did for all of creation, that we could be redeemed and restored. It's beyond anything we could deserve, comprehend, or imagine. Yet this is what the gospel is all about. You doing what is unimaginable on our behalf. So Lord, tonight, as we continue this gathering, I pray that you would draw each of our hearts near to Jesus. That we would leave here tonight in awe of what he has done on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
your body hangs. I can't look. Your lungs are empty. I saw you take your final breath. Now I can't breathe. Will I never hear your voice again? You came so close. You said my name, the crown of your head. I remember it anointed with oil, but now it's drenched in dirt and blood. The light of your eyes, they looked at me with knowing and gladness are now dull. Where is their promise? Your words were full of power, but as they beat and mocked and taunted you, you didn't shout or cry out. And now the hands that healed and fed thousands are lifeless, nailed to a cross. We had hoped that you were the one to redeem Israel. You were supposed to be the Messiah. I needed you to be the Messiah, our rabbi, my friend. Somebody get him down. Oh God, please get him down. He said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Did you not hear him? Do you not see him? Surely he was the son of God. He came here for us and we executed him. The voices who praised him with Hosanna gave way to the mob that shouted, crucify him. What have we done? Oh God, oh God, have you forsaken us?
It is finished. Behold, the broken king humiliated on a cross, crucified in weakness, the so-called Messiah wrapped up in the wretchedness of human flesh, (laughs) beaten, exposed, and cast out like an unwelcome dog by his own people. If you really cared for him, you would have sent one of your legions of angels down to deliver him off that cross, maker of heaven and earth. You've spent the ages assuring your people of your goodness, your presence. Speak of enduring faithfulness now. It was sold for 30 pieces of silver. (laughs) The Son of God was a bargain purchased for the price of a meager field. And here he hangs. The earth shook, the rocks trembled, and the praises were silenced. And to you, the silent father, he committed his spirit. If only he had committed it to me that day in the desert, he would have avoided all of this. But this? (laughs) This is better. Let them take down his body to decay in the dirt. Let all creation know the morning star has fallen, the lily of the valley is withered. The branch has been split for chaff. He is despised and rejected. Now, O oh man, you know your God, your precious creator, who is unable to stop this glorious slaughter unable to rescue his own beloved, unable to crush me. And now you will long for the days when you bruised my head and I struck at your heel, for I will devour you whole. It is finished.
It is finished. Behold, the Prince of Peace. His humble glory wrapped in suffering and affliction. Such weight of sin and wrath embraced willingly by thy beloved Son of God. <laughs> what magnitude of love is this that looks like blood poured out for the guilty? We wondered how the universe could bear such enduring affection, such steady tenderness displayed in every lash received, every thorn braved, every ounce of cruelty accepted by innocent loving kindness. Had he called down heaven to release him from pain, to, to heal his wounds. Oh, how we longed to tend to him. As they spat in his face and tore his flesh, if only they knew we were there. A multitude of heavenly hosts full of sorrow, bearing witness to the sacrificial majesty of Emmanuel from a balcony seat. It is the strange and marvelous wisdom of our king that death would be defeated by a cross carried willingly. He endured to the end for his people. Little did they know that this exaltation came through his humiliation. The son of man was lifted up and to the Father he committed his spirit. <laughs> Hope is fulfilled with his final breath. As the earth rumbled and quaked, the veil, that barricade between the everlasting and his people was torn down from top to bottom. He made a way. He made a way. Behold, our mighty God. He is the conquering lion and the sacrificial lamb whose blood proclaims salvation. Do you hear it in the quiet? It's the kingdom's message. Can you hear the assurance? His death for your life. It is finished.
I was sitting at the breakfast table with Asher and I was reading from the biggest storybook, um, Bible storybook, which you guys know I love my kids' Bibles. Um, and in it, it says this when we were reading about the events of Good Friday. We call the day he died Good Friday, and it was good, very good, amazingly good. We would say it was unbelievably good, except that it happened, and we should believe it. See, Jesus suffered so that we can be set free. Jesus died so that we can live forever. Jesus was the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. That's why we call it Good Friday. But for anyone who loved Jesus, that Friday seemed anything but good. It must have seemed to the disciples like Sad Friday or Tragic Friday or the worst Friday in the history of the world. You see, they would have been right in that to the extent that the only blameless one died. They'd have been wrong in that because they didn't know what was about to happen. Tonight we, 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 we sit at the foot of the cross and we look upon our Savior and what he has done for us. And we reflect, we ponder that. Not for guilt or shame, but to understand his goodness and his incredible love for us. Because there is no greater love than this when one dies for his friend. That is our good shepherd. That is our best friend. And that is our conquering king. So before we leave tonight, I would love to give us one last chance to be able to sit in this moment. So what I'm gonna do is, is uh, Lauren just keeps playing keys in the background. I just wanna give us like a minute. I would encourage you don't just take this one minute, but maybe take some more time tonight, some time tomorrow, sometime Sunday morning to reflect so let's go ahead and take a minute and just have a conversation with the father about this one whatever he has been stirring in your heart in our hour together this evening just talk to him about it ponder it between you and the father adopted sons and daughters into the forever family of God. So my encouragement to you tonight, tomorrow, and on Sunday is rest in that truth. That this is the cost, but it was a cost that he readily paid for you, for me, and to redeem all those he calls to himself. So with that, we look forward to Sunday. When we move from it is finished to he is risen. So I want to invite all of you back for our Easter Sunday gathering on Sunday night at 702. We're right here, just as normal. But it's going to be a special night just like this. So I hope that you come expectant, you come excited, and feel free to invite a friend or two if you'd like to come and experience both our community and the goodness of the gospel and what we discover in Jesus. I hope you have a great rest of your Good Friday evening. See y'all.